Coming to you from Brooklyn, New York, I'm Lisa Butterworth, and this is Caught Red-Handed. Peeps, this is Lisa Butterworth, and this is the Caught Red Handed podcast, episode four, where I interview Nick. Uh, just give you a little background about what's going on in my life here in Brooklyn, New York. It is super hot here, which is typical summer, of course. And we just had the Fourth of July. It was hot and humid, and everyone was out grilling and listening to music and putting off fireworks. I had a maternity henna appointment, which was. Um, kind of fun, kind of interesting, and a nice way to spend my 4th of July. In my own life, Mercury Retrograde is hitting me really, really hard. Um, For those of you who don't know what Mercury Retrograde is, it's a period of about two or three weeks, and it's when Mercury seems from the perspective of Earth to go back on its orbit, so going retrograde. And these periods have often been characterized by problems with things having to do with Mercury, namely communications, travel, that kind of thing. So appointments get missed, phone calls get missed, emails don't go through or people don't see emails, packages that you've delivered don't arrive, travel plans fall through, etc. And uh, that's just been kind of my life. I had two uh, sick cats, one right after the other, so I was running back and forth to the vet. My work schedule is just in constant flux. Usually I have a very set schedule and now I'm having to work a different schedule. And I'm trying really hard to keep all of my henna clients happy, which is very difficult. And in some cases, I've just told my clients that they would be a lot happier if they went with somebody else since my changing schedule is making their lives hell. So I had to give up on a bride. I had to give up on two college gigs. And a few other people, I think, just fell through the cracks because they were tired of me going back and forth. Uh, So hopefully I can get through this period. I still have a few clients coming up. Um, One very exciting thing is that my job is sending me to Australia to train people. That's what I do for my day job. And I had actually planned a trip to Turkey and Israel, but I hadn't actually bought my tickets. And I think maybe somewhere my intuition was telling me don't buy tickets. It's just about to when this trip to Australia came up. So I had to cancel that trip, which is a bummer, but I do get to go to Australia and maybe meet some, some of my Australian henna friends there. So I'm very excited about that and uh, just excited about uh, going on a trip anywhere. So in terms of Mercury Retrograde, I'm just Mercury Retrograde. I'm trying just to be like the bamboo bending with the wind and not snapping and uh, just trying to roll with the punches. Uh, So I said in my henna world, I've had a lot of cancellations and I have a few henna gigs right before I leave that I'm trying to to get going. Um, I have a couple private appointments tomorrow and I have a big bridal gig that's been booked about a year in advance. So um, I'm going to wrap those up and then head out of town. Um, Another problem is the high humidity here on the East Coast. It really makes the henna melt. So I've been checking the amount of sugar that I put in my paste and checking the consistency really carefully so I have really nice henna paste to apply to my clients and it doesn't um, just melt on people. So about this episode, uh, as I said before, Nick 
Cartier is my guest today finally. Nick and I kind of grew up together. We're about, um, I don't know how many years apart, but let's just say I'm old enough to be his mother. And yeah, we grew up together in henna, discovering and sharing and comparing, also helping each other, researching, um, just hours and hours and hours of chatting online, um, hanging out in person and also hang out a lot on henna page, you know, that old crew that came from henna page, all of us learning together, uh, learning from each other and, um, and just kind of growing up as henna artists and thinking back on those days, there were really some greats back then. And it's just amazing that these are the people that I came up with. Like my interview with Darcy, the first one for this podcast, I didn't really realize how little I knew about Nick until I interviewed him and I kept thinking I would know how he was going to answer things. And uh, you'll just hear me in the background just kind of agreeing and nodding my head uh, as he goes on, uh, on with all this stuff that I really didn't know about. So I learned a lot from this interview. I got a lot out of it. And I really feel like some deep source stuff shifted for me in how I view henna, um, creativity and and even to go so far as the future of our art and it also reminded me of a path that I used to be on but which I kind of um, that path has kind of been lost for me and I'm feeling an urge now to find that path again but not just go back to that old path but go down a path um, from the perspective of who I am now so like no I'm we talked for a very long time, Nick and I, and this interview kind of stops abruptly with me going on about cones and J-bottles, uh, but hopefully it will keep you wanting more. We are going to put the rest of the interview into part two, so uh, stay tuned for that, and um, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll always get the latest episode of the podcast as soon as it comes out. So I will stop talking now. I will come back at the end of the podcast and uh, give you some more information. And uh, I will just leave you with the first part of my interview with Nick Cartier. Thanks and enjoy. Hi, Nick. Hi, Lisa. (laughs) How's all of the sirens and the people covering up uh, evidence of crimes in your neighborhood? pretty quiet right now actually so okay good (laughs) (laughs) so yeah um by me even though i live in new york city somebody's mowing a lawn right outside my door so hopefully (laughs) our listeners don't hear that um so just to um get started i want to get something um kind of uncomfortable out of the way it's uh your fetish um, what? Which one? Um, well, it's your fetish for aging female style icons. <laughs> and what about it? Am I wrong? <laughs> I mean, no, you're basically right. But I, I mean, I see myself as these people and they're awesome. Oh, so. yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, well, I mean... Fetishes are great. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm not saying that this is wrong, but I wanted to talk about that because I want to know which of those you would most like to henna and what design you'd like to do for her. Um, well, okay. Do they have to be alive? <laughs> oh no, but they should, you know, in your dream, they would be alive while you're henning them. Cause then, right. you know, if you're henning them while they're dead, that's, that's like taking a fetish a little bit too far. Yeah, that's a whole new level. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so well, no, they don't have to be alive. 
I would have to say then that my, I'll give you three. Um, <laughs> Kalthum. Wow, yeah. Sheikh Arimiti. Okay. And Michelle Lamy, who is alive. Oh, she's the one with the black fingers. Yes. The black Rick Owen's wife. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Wow. Um, so what would you want to henna on each of them? Like what style or what body part? Um, I mean, they all already have worn henna on their hands. And that's, you know, that's kind of the old school, at least for me. So yeah. I want to work on their hands. Yeah. Um, for Um Kaltum... Um, that's a tough one because she's Egyptian, and so I don't know actually very much about traditional Egyptian work. Um, but I would probably do something floral. She always wore those amazing gowns and everything when she performed, so yeah. she's kind of a gaudy flair. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Sheikh Haremiti is, of course, Algerian and very traditional. Yeah. So I would do something geometric on her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always see her, like, Sheikh Haremiti and Hannah is always solid palms to me. Yeah. You know? But it'd be cool to actually do a design for her. Yeah. I wouldn't something do anything too easy. I would do something kind of, you know, kind of uh, kind of rough around the edges. Cause yeah. That's what would work best. To match her voice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so for those of you guys listening, Sheikh Remiti is um, basically like the godmother of Rai music, which is a kind of Algerian blues music. And she is just a really super cool woman. And um, she just kind of lived her life the way she saw fit, regardless of cultural mores. And she always had henna on her hands. She often had indigo on her hands. And... She was tattooed. Those were tattoos. Oh, that was tattoos? I thought she also yeah. used to put indigo or something. She might have. I don't know. And like on her palms, like you do with henna. And she also like smoke and drank and, you know, <laughs> sung about all of this stuff, which was kind of shocking to Algerians. But she was like, you know, the godmother of this style of music. So... And Nick and I love her. And I actually saw her in person in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> you saw her perform too in New York. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah see her. Ugh. Anyway, so, and then um, what about Michelle Lamy? What did you, what well, did you do for her? Um, I would do something kind of crazy. I mean, she's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Probably wouldn't know until I sat down with her. Um, I wonder what she would want. I don't know. She Well, she always wears her solid fingertips all the time. So, yeah. of course, that would be a part of it. Yeah. But I don't, I mean, something, something probably out of my own head. I I had been doing a lot of those really, um, like almost glyph like designs with, uh, using a lot of straight lines and, and oh, the concentric like, stuff. Yeah. I'd, I'd been doing a lot of that. So I'd probably move in that direction with her. Yeah. yeah that'd be very cool. So, um, so now I'm going to get down into like, um, kind of mundane stuff. Um, so you were talking about what your favorite, like what, what would you want, what you would want to do on these people. Um, but what would you say that you have a favorite style of henna or like a favorite way of doing henna? Um, you know, it changes and has changed many times over the years. Yeah. Um, right now, uh, I mean, 
when when I have to do something that I know I'm going to enjoy, even in a tough circumstance, like if I'm at a really busy festival or something, and somebody says, oh, do whatever you want, and I'm feeling kind of tired and maybe a little burnt out, yeah, then I do gravitate toward the Moroccan because I can do that and be pleased with it and enjoy it, you know? Oh, yeah. So, of course, that's there for that reason. But, I mean, as far as... What I'm really drawn to lately, it's it's uh, entirely different. I mean, I'm I just I want what I want to wear really is first of all is Mauritanian style work, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but, but that is like you know the kind of thing that you sit down to do it and your brain ties in a knot. So I don't do that very often. Yeah. Um, but then even I mean even simpler than that, I am really in love with all the really sort of old school, like Sheikharimiti solid kind of <laughs> stuff. I just think it's awesome. Yeah. And I wear that. So. That kind of rough and country yeah. kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that look of the solid henna and, and on the palms, especially because of the way that, you know, everybody's palm is kind of callous differently. And then the way it fades over mm-hmm. time. Just love that look. Yeah. There's something really classic about it for me, and it has some really old kind of feeling that I really like. It's yeah. like from the roots of this this thing we do. <laughs> yeah, and I think it also speaks to that person who loves henna. You know, and of course I'm thinking of Morocco, but that person who loves henna on a level that we can't really understand. Yeah. Like it's it's just such a visceral thing for them like i think here in the west we're like oh we love henna because of the pretty designs but they love henna on a completely different level mm-hmm. definitely so quitting henna <laughs> <laughs> um you quit henna kind of and yet you still do it so do you still feel like you're retired from henna what's um what do you what do you feel like your status is as a henna artist um i feel kind of like a lot of artists and musicians have done this over the years at a certain point Mm -hmm. they've kind of like reached a point where they're doing a lot of work and they're you know making their big album or whatever it is (laughs) and and they go into a period of lull (laughs) like really and just do other things or whatever. Um, And that's kind of how I'm feeling. Like, you know, I mean, I think that uh, if I was going to stop outright, Mm -hmm. that I probably would have done that by now. And so obviously that's not happening. I still have a cardboard box full of henna in my house. Yeah. Like I didn't, you know, I I still have these things around and I still do use them every so often. I mean, I don't, I have almost nothing booked for the summer, but you know, that could change. And (laughs) so, yeah, I mean, I'm just in this funny lull space and I, what's, what I'm sort of doing with myself is trying to work out like, okay, um, what got me here to this space where I feel like, oh God, like I need a break. And is that something that I can sort of use? Like, um, you know, can I, can I figure out, because I feel like the reason that I, one of the reasons that I am in this, you know, this break period is because I have some ongoing frustration with the whole, with the medium and with the community and, you know, a whole group of things. Uh And so I'm kind of trying to figure out, 
can I work this out? And if I can work this out, is this something that I can then take back into my artistic practice, especially as a teacher, Mm -hmm. um, and say, you know, here's something that I sort of worked on and worked out. And, you know, this is something we might all be uh, wrestling with. Yeah. So what are some of those frustrations? Can we start to tease those out and (laughs) parse them? Um, I mean, for, for one, part of it is an artistic frustration. Um, for you or for the art? Well, I, it is for me in a lot of ways, but I feel like it's, uh, like a lot of people are not like getting there fully. Like there, so there's a lot of focus on like making something pretty or making something, you know, traditional Indian or Moroccan or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I love those things. Those are great things. But I feel like, my God, like for how many years can we do this? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I want there to be some push forward as in the, in the most basic, you know, like what, what we create as far as designs and and how we think of them. I want there to be some movement there. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I feel like everybody has just gotten so hung up in a few little areas and there's like this whole crazy world out there of things we could be doing. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, I mean, as somebody who <laughs> maybe unfortunately was trained in the fine arts, um, <laughs> that gets really frustrating because, you know, you're exposed to such a wide variety of things and then you see this one art that you have focused in on and it's like stuck in itself. Um, and I just want to, you know, blow everybody's head open and say, Oh my gosh, look at the possibilities. Um, because the more that that happens, the more that people do branch out, I feel like it creates this whole other kind of recognition for what we do. Um, and that, sorry, go ahead. Do you think that that happened at some point in the past, you, you know, you and I kind of started henna at the same time. Do you think there was a period somewhere along there where that happened? It's a good question. Um, I don't know. I feel like it seemed like it was happening because I mean, we kind of like when, when the West and when Americans specifically sort of came to henna, um, Thank you for not saying discovered. <laughs> Columbus <laughs> discovered America. <laughs> the wrong choice of word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yes, when we came to Henna. Yeah. Um, there was, like, we were discovering what worked and what looked nice. And so there were people, and still are people, like yourself and, uh, like, Cree and mm. a few other artists um, who make really gorgeous work Um that was sort of outside of, but in, but also incorporating traditional styles. Yeah. Um, and so for a while that was like the big thing. And it was, you know, it was, it was those kinds of people, those kinds of artists were setting the example. And a lot of them are still setting a phenomenal example for us. But I feel like even past that, there's more that we haven't reached yet. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of feels like back in the day, there was like this, these flurries of discoveries. And, you know, oh, the Kurdish Jews do henna, and oh, we can use terps, and oh, there are different styles of Moroccan. It was, it just seemed like it was fast and furious, all these things. And now, 
that's all been incorporated into our collective knowledge of henna and and I don't feel like people are searching anymore. Right, it's true. And and maybe I mean I don't know, maybe it I have to wonder like maybe that's because they need some kind of example. I don't know. I mean yeah. there was there were a few people really in that time period who were kind of like the trailblazers and saying, Hey, look at all this stuff. Yeah. And I think the tricky thing now is that, so we found all that stuff and all of specifically design wise, mm-hmm. all of those things that are, you know, incorporated, as you said now, um, and they can all be considered like, you know, I hate, I hate this word, but they can all be considered pretty if you want them mm-hmm. to. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so we're reaching a point where like, Maybe the pretty designs are exhausted. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe the the step we need to take is to do something really bizarre. Yeah. Uh, which I mean, I keep thinking like somebody's gonna love this. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it's gonna be weird. It's gonna feel weird. Yeah, definitely. To some of us. I mean, to me, I love all that weird shit. But you know, some other people may take some getting used to. But uh, yeah, I, I feel like. There's, there's so much there that people really could tap into. Yeah. I think about that time you posted that horde of Sudanese designs and mm. everyone was just going crazy about them. But was that like four months ago? It was, yeah, maybe a little longer. And I'm not seeing it showing up in the henna world. I know. And, and you know, and I like it, but it, like for me, it's, it, didn't really make me want to do those designs. And, and I'm thinking maybe it's because, you know, I'm thinking my clients won't ask for that. I can put that in my book, but none of my clients really want it. So, um, you know, why bother? And I wonder if that's maybe what's holding us back is that our clients aren't there with us. I think that is, I think that is a big part of it, but also, I mean, you know, in, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of situations like this, you kind of have to lead people to it almost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if we don't offer them, then they don't even know they exist. Like these are not henna people who are looking around saying, Oh, look at that Sudanese design. I'm going to ask this henna artist if she can do a Sudanese design. Yeah. People don't have any, any, any thought toward that. Yeah. Um, And so I don't know. I mean, I have to wonder like, and I should probably, you know, I mean, like I said, I don't do many gigs anymore, but I should probably just, you know, when I do a gig, fill a book with all of this weird stuff and see what happens. Yeah. And say, these are your choices. Deal with it. (laughs) Or, you know, maybe not quite so mercenary, but, (laughs) but, but, you know, at least let people know that it's there because like, I I think, I I mean, I know statistically speaking, even there's going to be somebody who's like, oh my God, that's awesome. Yep. You know, that's all it takes to start a new kind of wave. Totally. I I remember when I first started doing henna in New York and I learned very quickly that half of my job was doing henna and the other half was educating people. And you and I were always discussing all this traditional stuff and, and authentic stuff, whatever you want to call it. So I would do these street festivals and my clients all wanted stuff that looked like henna. They wanted Chinese characters and names and, you know, tramp stamps. For me, I just hated that stuff. I hated it. And after a while, I just took it out of my book. I only put traditional stuff in there and people would ask me for things. And I made a point of educating them about what the designs are. And that was new to them, you know, even 
your basic Mendy strip was new to them, but now people love that stuff. They ask for it. They specifically show me Mendy strips and say, this is what I want. So I don't know why we can't re-educate our customers in the direction that we want to go. We can, I think. I mean, it's, 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 (laughs) it's not easy. Like, yeah, I remember some of those days and especially like some of the events that we did together in New York years and years ago. I mean, just getting those kinds of requests and, you know, even events that I did at home anywhere. Um, And so, yeah, it's like, we may have gotten a little lazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know I have. (laughs) That is work. And, you know, now now that we're like, okay, we can offer them these things that we enjoy doing and they will like them. Yeah. It's kind of, it's not exactly motivating to, to, keep uh to keep at it (laughs) to keep pressing (laughs) yeah and it's and it's true you know i sometimes i have a few moroccan designs in my bridal portfolio and so brides are looking through them and you know telling me what they like and sometimes you know i can see them look at a moroccan design and hear them just go ugh and it's so heartbreaking to see something that i love so much and have them just kind of dismiss it because it's not within their realm of understanding of henna. So it's hard to put yourself out there with new stuff. It is. It is. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know, really. We might just have to try it or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it just takes the courage to try it. And yeah. I, I think also, I mean, another part of this is not – not even maybe this is a step before you know before meeting with clients is sort of re-inspiring some of that uh artistic exploration in the community of henna artists yeah which has been like maybe more frustrating to me yeah it's true i feel like and i feel it in myself so you know if i point the finger i definitely have to point it at myself because once i decided i wanted to do bridal henna I kind of caved into what brides want and I can say, Oh yeah, I bring my special Kenzie style to it. But really, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give them what they want. I'm trying to give them what they expect. And it takes me away from all that creative stuff that I was exploring back in the day. Yeah. I almost wish like that there were a way for people to really separate from the business aspect of it. Yeah. A little while because we're so focused on you know being successful business people as henna artists now and that doesn't i mean when has big business ever fostered creativity (laughs) Um, really when you think about it um or maybe like you know the medici (laughs) yeah um but we we're definitely you know uh at a point where I wish that there was this kind of just sort of free ranging creativity that was available to people. Yeah. But they didn't feel like it had to be contributing toward their success. Um, Yeah, exactly. Like who cares if this stuff that I'm spending hours on makes money, it, it goes somewhere. It does something. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I think that at a certain point, uh, you know, when you, when you do something for long enough and when you are good enough at it, then you can reach a point where, you know, you can go to a gig and, and crank out whatever for two yeah. hours and yeah. then home and do something different. Right. That's not easy either. No, it's not. Yeah. And, you know, if you're, if you're doing henna full time, 
it's exhausting to do that. And then do you have the strength and, or, you know, the, the energy to go back and switch off the, the business henna artist and turn into the art henna artist. Right. Exactly. Um, and I think, I mean, I just have to try and convince people that that's worth trying to do. Yeah. Because I, I really think it is like, if, if we're not doing that, then what the hell are we doing and why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, then we're just be- doing a, we're just doing something. We're phoning it in. Right. We're, we might as well be selling widgets. Like, you know, really, it doesn't matter at that point if you're not working on yourself as an artist. Yeah. I really think that, and it's hard to convince people sometimes. And yeah, I, it's true. I don't know. It's, it's a funny problem. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and I often say, Oh, well, I have a full-time job and it pays my rent and I don't have to take every gig and it allows me time to do creative stuff but honestly I don't do that much creative stuff and that's and I think that's just a choice that I'm making about how I want to spend my time so I yeah yeah you know I I could make the time if it mattered right I I think that I mean really somehow showing people that there is concrete benefit in this is maybe going to be the hardest step yeah because when you finally realize that there is true benefit for yourself and for, you know, the artistic community in general in what you're doing, then you're going to put all this energy into it. Of course. I mean, you know, if you're a creative person, you're going to put energy into it once you've made that sort of leap in your thought process. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I've experienced something like that where, you know, as I'm, as I've sort of taught myself to paint, I've been painting tattoo flash for, you know, I mean, maybe just about a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I spend a huge majority of my time doing. And I'm not selling those paintings. They're mm-hmm. not, you know, they're not benefiting me in a monetary way or anything else. They're making a portfolio for me, which is going to benefit me in the future. So it's that kind of process, I think, for a lot of artists that, you know, they have to find a way to see a concrete benefit in it, especially if there's business involved on any level. Yeah. Um, they have to see a concrete benefit in order to really put that extra time in. Yeah. And it's hard to convince people yeah, of. And I, sorry, and especially what? Especially when, you know, our industry basically functions as a business yeah. in its current yeah. form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think if your client doesn't demand it, why learn anything else? If your client, right. you know, I have a lot of clients who say they want glitter henna. So <laughs> no, I don't have a lot, actually. I get them every once in a while. Um, so if you want those clients, then you have to learn to do glitter henna. Or if you get a lot of clients who ask you for, you know, golf style, then you have to learn that. But I don't feel like our clients really push us with challenging, artistically challenging things. Right. So we've kind of talked in a circle (laughs) because it it goes back to what I said earlier, where if they don't know it's available, they're not going to ask for it. So you kind of have to start somewhere. So maybe, you know, people like us who used to be part of that vanguard and who care about this stuff still, I guess it's up to us to actually do it and, you know, kind of throw ourselves out there. It might be. Um, I think for me, part of what I'm trying to do 
especially because I don't have a lot of client interaction at this point anymore. Um, what I'm really trying to do is as I'm teaching, that's what I'm focusing my energy on. Mm. As I'm teaching, I'm trying to instill that within my students so that they can, you know, these fresh young artists <laughs> can yeah. develop sort of this sort of sense of exploration and go out there because they're the ones who are interacting with the clients. It's, I mean, yeah, artists true. who artists who aren't burnt out yet <laughs> <laughs> are, are the ones who are doing the most gigs. Um, and so if I can, through a, through my position as a teacher, if I can, you know, get them excited about that aspect of it, yeah, that's sort of what I'm trying to do, how I'm trying to get that involved. Um, we'll see if it works. It might be starting to work. I mean, the whole Mauritanian thing was kind of a prime example. Yeah, of, that's true. Um, and even just our, our Moroccan classes got, you know, all of a sudden there was this big flurry of Moroccan designs popping up here true. and there. And now I'm seeing Mauritanian designs from people I would never expect them from. Yes, absolutely. And, and yeah, I mean, that's because, you know, we were like, Hey, look at this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's easy in both cases there because, you know, I mean, the vast majority of the designs in question from Morocco and Mauritania mm -hmm. are exciting and pretty and artistically interesting. Yes. yes. They're, they're not what we were mentioning before as far as like the really bizarre stuff. And some of it yeah. looks bizarre at first, but, you know, you get past that pretty quickly when you're looking at those kinds of designs. Um, but so, you know, it's been easier with those two. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know if we can if we can do it with those things, then we can probably do it with other even more insane styles. <laughs> oh, totally. So do you see any one or any thing that is currently kind of in that vanguard now or moving things forward? That's a tough one. Um, hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I do. Um, I mean, I'm probably forgetting something or someone. Um, there are a few people who have sort of, uh, like, sort of dipped their toes in the water, mm -hmm. <laughs> so to speak. Um, and, and I've seen a few people doing some pieces that were, you know, really, really... Uh, for, in my head, like, you know, very traditional stuff that is now considered more out there. Um, I don't know if you ever saw, uh, there's a, there's a photograph of some work by, uh, Karen Berman, uh, who is traditional henna by Karen. And it was, she had done like the Tunisian solid, you know, fingers up to the knuckles and then toes up past the toe joint, like mm -hmm. soft red with the decorative edging um, on all both hands and feet. And I was like, oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's <laughs> it right there. Yeah. It's going back to the roots, but it's something that still is not present in our vocabulary as henna artists yeah. today. And so those kinds of things I see every now and then. Um, and it's always really exciting to see that. Yeah. Um, and I guess that I should probably, you know, try and in my role should probably try and encourage more of it. Yeah. It's funny. Cause as you were saying that, I, you know, I, in my mind, I'm thinking the Vanguard is always kind of this thing that points to the future, but I think the Vanguard almost has two fronts, you know, like this, mm -hmm. uh, Karen Berman, her designs, I, I'm, I can't think if I've seen them before, but she's kind of on the Vanguard, but looking backwards, you know, going, I looking back into the past and, and kind of, re-amplifying 
things that were great back then or elsewhere. Right. I mean, it definitely expands in two directions. I mean, yeah. you know, that's that's a big part, I think, of being a really well-rounded artist is, you know, always looking for what's new, but always looking farther and further back to your own roots because yeah. it's all connected. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're, you just said it in kind of an offhand way a few minutes ago, but it, it made me think of another tangent I wanted to go down. Um, you were saying that you feel like Moroccan and Mauritanian stuff was easily adopted because it is pretty Mm -hmm. and there is an aesthetic that henna artists can, um, can be drawn in by so so that prettiness is it just seems very linked to henna like good henna is pretty henna but that isn't necessarily true for people who use henna as part of their culture you know like in morocco the solid hands or the fingertips or whatever um and then it also just makes me think of this whole subject that i discussed with noam about men in henna um so I'm wondering what we have more male henna artists here in the U S um, around the world. A lot of the street artists in India are men. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you think this prettiness is going to go? What's going to, what do you think the effect of men and henna is going to have on, on henna equals pretty? Um, well, first, I mean, I, I think there actually must be a better word than pretty <laughs> because it encompasses some of, of what I mean, but it's actually kind of a sloppy word choice. Um, I think maybe aesthetically pleasing or, you know, something, something like that. That's so many syllables. <laughs> no, it is. I know. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So but pretty it's more toward what I mean. Yeah, uh, I understand. But um, also our clients look at that and they go, oh, I want that. That's pretty or that's beautiful or that's cool. So definitely do. it's all those are all words, I guess, for aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. OK. Um, oh, wait. And and I guess f- like when I hear the like words like pretty and beautiful, I feel like that those are very feminine concepts. They yeah. They so have. and then that's what I want to know is where the men coming up in henna, becoming more prominent in henna, where they fit into this or how they, how they can change it or move it somewhere. Hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of a funny question um, because very, very, very many of the male henna artists I know are queer boys. <laughs> yes. But let's so, also not get, you I know, 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 let's not say that all gay men are into pretty and They're are not. femme. They're so, not. yeah. But we have a unique position of almost straddling that as a concept. You're like, shamans. You're henna shamans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but... <laughs> We don't have to, but I just had to say that. Go ahead. And and maybe that is in itself a step forward because you know, we're we're not necessarily concerned with the gender connotations of what we do um because we already are breaking a lot of those sort of roles um in society. Yeah. Um that's true. And so there is great potential for expansion there um into new realms. And so it's it's 
I don't know. It's a tough question. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I guess that in essence, what do you, what, what do you think the impact of men and henna will have on the pretty prettiness focus of henna right now? And that ties into the thing that our clients want pretty stuff. Um, I think, well, and th that brings up an interesting point that I don't know about you, but probably 90% of my clients over the years and now have been women. Yeah. And most, and probably 90% of my male clients are gay. Right. And so that brings an interesting point too, that, you know, um, there may be male artists, but it doesn't mean that any more men are wearing henna necessarily. Yeah. And I don't know that that's either a good or a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, you know, where we stand at current. Um, and that could change. I mean, part of kind of what I'm trying to do as a, as an, as a human being aesthetically <laughs> mm. is to sort of marry two worlds that have been very, very important to me of henna mm -hmm. and tattooing, permanent tattooing, mm -hmm. um, which is often considered a much more sort of masculine pursuit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as someone who is heavily tattooed myself and has been involved in that industry for almost as long as I've been involved with henna, uh -huh. um, I feel like that actually for me a couple of times has started to bridge a gap. Um, I, I mentioned the other day um, on, on one of the one of the groups on Facebook um, that I kind of love when people will say to me, I got a real tattoo. Mm attempting to be kind of gruff about yeah yeah say well so did i yeah <laughs> then they kind of like it's like their eyes sort of bug out and they're like oh he's covered in tattoos yeah. like i didn't noticed um and so i feel like that's getting somewhere and and actually in the community of tattoo artists um henna art is becoming actually very respected because their clients are asking for permanent tattoos that look like henna. Yeah. And so, you know, tattooing is, I mean, it still is very much so a straight male dominated profession. Yeah. And so these men, these straight men tattooers are having to learn about henna designs. And actually <laughs> a lot of them are developing quite, uh, you know, quite a talent for it and being respected for it as artists and as tattooers. Yeah that's an interesting little sort of area where there's starting to be crossover and um, at least, you know, that, that, that kind of uh, gender dynamic is influencing things in, I think a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. Like I look at that guy. Um, it's funny to say guy, um, the, that French guy, Guy, yes. Guy yes. Le Tatoueur and his yes. stuff is um, Phenomenal. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's this kind of henna style, this kind of Rajasthani um, embroidery and, you know, pretty stuff, and yet it's very um, sure and precise and almost kind of, it, he, he's almost kind of punk rock in the way that he's breaking, <laughs> breaking, I don't know, like the boundaries of what is a tattoo, what is masculine. Absolutely. And yet so, it's still really pretty stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it, it depends so much on, I mean, this is another big thing for me in henna. It depends on how it's worn and who's wearing it. Mm -hmm. It always does. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest thing really is, you know, who who is this person who, that this thing lives on? 
Yeah. Uh, and how do they carry it? Yeah. Which but, is really significant with tattoos because they're permanent. And, you know, with henna, it's kind of like, who is this person in the two weeks that it takes for the henna to fade? I still, I mean, somebody, I don't, I wish I could remember who it was. I think it might've been Rebecca, um, who pointed out to me, it was either Rebecca or Nev, um, said, you do all your work like it's permanent. And I was like, oh, geez, because hmm. <laughs> I hadn't really realized that. But I do. I definitely do. I approach it that way because while that person is wearing it, it's permanent for them. Yeah, exactly. But they can't chop their hand off and, and get rid of it. It's yeah. going to fade when it fades, and that's all you can do. Um, but even, you know, that aside, like, I still, I mean, we're making art for people to wear on their bodies. And so that's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You I have to dress it that way. Yeah, I agree. Although for me, I get so self-critical while I'm working that I have to forget that it's going to stain their skin otherwise I'll freak out about every little <laughs> thing that I do. So I don't I, I don't know, for me it's um it's stressful to think of it as permanent. <laughs> People have definitely uh mentioned that to me before and hmm. I don't know if I have a good like like trick for getting over it <laughs> um I don't know I mean for me that kind of I think that is one of the things that really spurred me to to practice as much as I did was so that I could have that kind of confidence that you know yeah. I could go into this and and think of it as if it is permanent and not be freaked out by it yeah it's because of all the hours and hours and hours of practice that I had done to back myself up um but also, I mean, the nice thing is that, okay, so like if you go into a design and you're thinking, you know, treating it as if it's permanent, really trying to make something that this person could wear for the rest of their life if they mm. want to, well, if you screw it up, guess what? It's not permanent. <laughs> yeah. But you also bring that idea of quality and like a total commitment to what you're doing. Right. Exactly. If you think of it as permanent. Yeah. Exactly. It's a good way to think of it. Yeah. And then, you know, if you need to let yourself off the hook, you let yourself off the hook. Yeah. You know, but yeah, if you approach it initially with that idea in your head and that commitment, exactly, um, then I think it can, you know, bring you far as far as the quality of your work. And I think what you said about practicing a lot is really helpful because then you make all of your mistakes while practicing and you work through them so that when you're in a situation where you don't want to make mistakes, you've already made them. And not necessarily that you don't make mistakes when you're in that situation. Yeah. One of the things about the great things about practice is that you learn to deal with mistakes. Right. You paint yourself into a corner and then you figure out how to get out. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you develop a sort of a set of, of tools then. Coping that, mechanisms. Exactly. If you find yeah. yourself in a situation artistically and you don't know what to do, you have something to call upon. Yes. Absolutely. So, so that brings up another one of my questions. Um, and this is another kind of more mundane practical matter. But when it comes to practice, if you have to learn a new style um, or a new tool, what are the, do you have a procedure for that? <laughs> or do you like, do you have a set of steps that you go through to practice something new? 
Okay, which one first, a new style or a new tool? <laughs> uh, let's just go with, I think a new tool is, is a little bit easier to deal with, and then we can go over new style, because that's, okay. that's, I know that's a, I, a I do have subject. procedure for that one. <laughs> oh, for, for practicing a new tool? No, a new style. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think we, I think you went over that in the, um, in the class yeah, style yeah. school. So yeah, it'd be good to talk about that too. So, so do you have a procedure for practicing a new tool? Um, I mean, you kind of just have to get it in your hand and use it. Um, there's no real, like, and of course, you know, you want to be in low pressure situations. Like mm-hmm. if you're an artist who has worked with jacquard bottles for your whole life and you want to switch to cones, which is what I did, um, you know, you kind of just have to figure out how the hell the damn thing works. Um, <laughs> and how do you do that? Well, I mean, how do you do it? How did you do it? it's tough. Like, you know, you have to, first of all, you've got to gather some information if you can, which is really great because, you know, at at least at this point, there is a lot more information out there. Um, And then you kind of just have to screw around until something works. I mean, I remember years ago, actually, when I was first starting out, I started with cones and then switched to bottles for many years and then switched back to cones. But, Mm -hmm. um, but in the very, very beginning, I mean, like, you know, we didn't know what to roll cones with. Like, nobody had really realized that. Ziploc bags. Yeah, no. (laughs) I cut up plastic Ziplocs, that horrible, (laughs) stretchy, floppy stick, and roll henna cones out of them and use them. Yeah. Like, because we didn't know. Yeah. Um, And then even as far as rolling the cones, I mean, that was always... that was always a, 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 a tricky thing because everybody did it a little differently. I have always used a rectangle to roll my cone. I think probably because um, very, very early on I was reading um, Loretta Room's work and that was the method she suggested. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I went with that method and, and made it work for me. Yeah. But, you know, it's you're going to make a lot of bum cones if you're trying to learn how to roll cones. You're just yeah. you're make a lot of shitty shitty cones yeah and that's fine because you know every so often then you're gonna get one that works and you're gonna say oh i did it what did i do how did i do this and almost almost more important than trying to figure out what i what you did to make the one that worked is just continuing to do it (laughs) yeah exactly it's like getting the paste consistency it's hard to know what you did just know when you when you get it right Right. Um, and a few times in the past couple of years, I have taught, you know, little cone rolling demos. And yeah, the same thing happens every time. Some people are a natural for it and they'll get it right away. But mm-hmm. some people roll a bunch of cones that are not so great and they're like, oh, these are no good. And then all of a sudden something happens and they roll one that works and they're like, oh, OK, OK. So, you know, that's you kind of have to do that. Um, it's something you kind of have to go through. Yeah. When, anything new um and then as far as using the tools i mean that's the same way you're gonna want to screw around in a lot of low pressure situations um and until you figure out what works for you um and there are tips and tricks which you know it's good because if you if you are you know conscious and and look around and ask people for help and see you know how successful people are doing this a lot of people um really have made that kind of knowledge available, which is yeah. and, and great of them to do so. Um, so you can learn a lot just by, you know, doing a little bit of research and, and looking at how, uh, how people are using things successfully. I'm kind of your poster child for what you were saying of switching from jacquard bottles to cones. And, and I think I finally got my cone rolling down. Actually, that was pretty easy, but um, 
taping it up afterwards, I had to find something that, that was comfortable for me. Cause that also kind of depends on what, um, how you work, what you like to do. Um, some people love it when their cone gets floppy and they just like to squeeze the tip. I like my cone to be tight and full, just like a, like a jacquard bottle. So yeah. I'm always rolling it down and retaping it. But, um, and then, uh, to get good at it, I just bring my jacquard bottles and some cones to gigs. Never, not yet to bridal gigs, but I bring them both to party mm-hmm. gigs or college gigs and then just switch off and on. Or I, yeah. you know, I challenge myself and say, okay, the next five people you're going to do with a cone, regardless of yeah. what design they ask for. It's with Absolutely. The cone, so. And, you know, and if that's even too much pressure, I mean, you know, shoot, like, you know, make lines on a piece of paper. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I've, you know, I do that. I did that before I started bringing right. them to gigs, but yeah, that is, that is the intermediate step. So that is the end of episode four of the Caught Red-Handed podcast. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. It's always interesting to talk to Nick. I love hanging out with him, whether it's just as friends or talking about henna. And I hope that we brought some of that conversation that we have between us to life for you guys listening. Again, uh, please leave me comments, suggestions, wish list items, etc., either on the blog or on Facebook or on iTunes or wherever. I would definitely appreciate hearing from you guys and finding ways that I can make this podcast better and maybe make some of your dreams come true. So, as always, thank you, Nashkaram, for your gorgeous photo that adorns the blog and the Facebook page and the iTunes page. And I would like to put in a special plug for Shlomi Cohen's Kickstarter page. He has a campaign out there to help support his upcoming album. He did the music for this podcast, including the music that you hear in the background as I speak. So if you like this music, or if you just like world music, or you believe in independent artists making their own music and putting it out there for the world to hear, please support his Kickstarter campaign. He has about a week left. If you would like to support his Kickstarter campaign, even just a few dollars, $10 will get you the CD when it comes out. You can find information about his Kickstarter campaign on his website, shlomicohen.com, S-H-L-O-M-I-C-O-H-E-N.com, and there's a Kickstarter link at the bottom. Also, you can go to Kickstarter and you can search for his name, or you can just search for his album name, which is Breather, B-R-E-A-T-H-E-R. So thank you so much for supporting him and uh, supporting this podcast by supporting his music since he did the music for this podcast for free. So that's it for episode four. Part two of my interview with Nick will be in the next episode of the podcast. So please stay tuned and subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss out on any upcoming episodes. Thanks and see you next time. Bye. Oh my gosh, look at the possibilities.